Hello listeners and welcome to the Chosen Brew podcast, the podcast where guests talk their way through the six beers that changed everything. But in this 20th episode, there is no guest. Something did happen to me, well not to me, but did happen, uh, it did affect me, which is my wife gave birth to my second child uh, three weeks early. So that did uh, change the schedule a little bit and it has meant a few sleepless nights and uh, also that I couldn't get around to recording the 20th episode but I didn't want to leave you without an episode so I've worked very hard to piece together some of the content from the last 19 episodes now for those of you who's who are completist and listen to all the episodes it's a nice nostalgic uh, walk down memory lane for those of you who haven't listened to all of them you might find a little morsel in there which inspires you to go back and have a listen but also this is a great episode to share with friends who haven't listened to the podcast before uh, to give them a little flavor of uh, all the different voices and different stories and all of the wonderful people who make up the beer scene in Melbourne and in Australia and further afield as well. So I thought the best place to start was at the very beginning, the first brewer who agreed to come on the show Many thanks again to Derek Hales of Bad Shepherd in Cheltenham. One thing that struck me about Derek was his openness, but also his knowledge about the business side of things and also his passion for great beer. One thing that did surprise me is he didn't know a lot about beer in the beginning. Before I came to Australia in 2006, I wouldn't have known a craft beer from... um from a domestic log. I wouldn't know the difference. I thought I did, but, um, you know, whether it was a, um, a Budweiser or a Molson or a Labatt, they're all, they're all domestic loggers. I didn't know there probably, I'm certain there was craft beer. Um, in fact, Muskoka brewery was, was around since the early two thousands. Um, but I didn't know them. Um, and I don't know when mad Tom was launched. I didn't discover it until, Oh boy, probably 2010, 2011, when I started getting into craft beer and went home and I dabbled in quite a few different breweries, just being a craft beer um, geek um, and trying different beers. And, um, you know, as we do, um, you know, the loyalty isn't strong in craft beer brands, but there is in the category. Um, and we all kind of float in and out of beers. Um, that's kind of the fun of it. Um, but um, when I discovered the Mad Tom, I thought, wow, at that. That is a good beer. And, it, you know, every time I go home, it's always one of the first ones I grab off the shelf. It actually is the first one I grab. So, um, and that's partly because it's amazing, but now also because the guys, I got to know the owners um, and they were very helpful to me. So, yeah. Now, moving on from Derek's Canadian experience to a very Australian experience, here's Aaron from Watts River Brewing talking about his first memorable beer. My first beer is not really a beer that I would... <laughs> I don't think I'd happily drink it again. It's not really my, one of my favourite beers, but it does stand out to me as an early-on sort of thing, and it's Bogue Strong Arm Bitter. Uh, it's probably... Looking back at when I just I began drinking as a, a younger bloke, it was something that I bought quite a bit of, and it was something that, uh, I don't know, in sort of a, a beer-wankery way, was slightly different to whatever all the other dudes 
I was hanging around with his buying and um, amazingly it was some dizzying 5.4% rather than, you know, the Carlton cold 4 point whatever that everyone else around there was drinking. Um, yeah, like I said, not not an amazing beer and I'm, I'm not, doesn't exist anymore so I'm not sure I'd buy it again. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know, it's, it's probably the first time I, I think I was making conscious choices um, about my beer rather than just turning up to a party and someone hands me a beer, you know, it's something you don't think about it. It's something I was going, okay, I want something that's a little bit different to what everyone else has got and, you know, possibly it was a little bit bigger and possibly it had a little bit more flavour. I don't know, that might be a bit, a bit of a stretch. Um, but, yeah, it's probably one of, yeah, one of the first things I can remember from thinking about beer. Occasionally on the Chosen Brew, when we record, some of the guests bring along one or two beers uh, to refresh their memory and kind of walk down memory lane as we're recording. Uh, Dan Schofield from True Love Brewing certainly did that. And this beer really, really surprised me. It's a old favourite. Here's Dan Schofield. We're going back to New South Wales. <laughs> so we're going with, uh, with an old favourite uh, back in the day, two is old dark ale. Something that people probably wouldn't expect to be on my list, but it is, um, and it's 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 one of the classics. So, what what is it about two is old dark that changed the way you thought about beer? I mean, I I'd never really had a dark beer before, um, so it was probably one of the first dark beers I ever had, and. Um, I just remember really enjoying that sort of roasty, burnt, sort of chocolate toffee, little bit of coffee sort of flavour in there. Um, and it was just like, wow, that is totally different. <laughs> yeah, it actually, uh, it smells delicious. Yeah. It, all of those words you said, exactly in that <laughs> smell, what's it like to taste then? <laughs> it's actually delicious (laughs) (laughs) now talking of old favorites one beer that has kept cropping up on the chosen brew is the one that marty oliver from boronor brew house in rural new south wales in a town of orange was talking about it's the first beer that he started talking about when we recorded and I'm sure it will appear in many future episodes. Here's Marty Oliver from Boronor. It would have to be the Cooper's Red, you know, the sparkling ale. I think it, I would have asked the host of the party, what's what's this beer you've shoved in my hand? And they'll go, it's a Cooper's. And I'd have a look and think, yeah, but there's sludge in the bottom. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that's part of it. I go, what do you mean? And he would say, "Oh, it's part. It's f- it's finished fermenting in the bottle." And to me, the you know, my science brain just went, "Wow, that's amazing! How does that happen? You know, what happens? You put more sugar in, and like he said, oh, yeah, it can bottles can explode, and then the danger factor, <laughs> you know, for me twigged to go, oh, okay.' So I think I tasted that beer, and it was probably different to, you know, the old Silver Bullet, the Reshes." that I'd probably seen at family parties. <laughs> and, um, yeah, to actually rouse that yeast and have it cloudy and taste the difference between just just clear or with a bit of a bit more bite. That Cooper's yeast really does have a little bit of a bite to it if you get it really going. Um, I just love that. That that blew me away and got me interested in home brewing. So that beer started Marty's journey off 
in terms of homebrewing and then he grew that into something bigger just outside the town of Orange in New South Wales. You must visit if you're in the area. Now, one of the nice things about the Chosen Brew podcast is when you're recording it with the guests, even if they're very fashionable, right on, they know all the fashionable beer trends and know got the finger on the pulse of the scene, they all have a beer in their formative years, which maybe they're a little bit embarrassed about now, but still it had a very important part to play when they started on their beer journey. Here is Steve from Tallboy and Moose explaining away one of his chosen beers. Yeah, so this is the first beer that mm, flicked a light switch in my head and made me decide that I liked beer. And uh, I would have been relatively young and in my youth, I didn't like beer. I, I didn't think that it tasted that good and I wasn't particularly fond... F- yeah, so um, you won't be surprised that the first beer that I in- decided that I liked is quite flavorless and it's called Corona. <laughs> so uh, vacation in a bottle, jam a wedge of lime in there and it doesn't really taste like beer at all. Um, so uh, pretty pretty easy going and um, in my youth... Uh, I didn't I didn't drink that much so I guess I was a bit of a, a lightweight so Corona was a nice light sort of easygoing beverage for me um, and um, yeah from there you know I, I dabbled a lot with uh, macro lager um, I guess. Now most of the guests on the Chosen Brew podcast have been kind of in the age range where the only thing that they could drink when they were started their beer journey was beers that were macro brewed and mass produced and so it's interesting when people start to just skirt on the edge of that and start to move in so just rounding off this little section about the first beers this is luke robertson from ale of a time explaining his first beer moments when things started to tick over in his mind about what beer could be and it's a little bit of a sad story at the end Here's Luke. So my first one is actually probably the first beer that made me realise that beer was slightly more interesting than sweet lager. Uh, I'm originally from the west coast of New Zealand, and Monteith's was somewhat of our local craft brewery, for for lack of a better word. Still owned by DB at the time, um, or always been owned by DB. But they had a beer called Celtic Red, um, which was an amber, I think it was a lager. It wasn't an ale, but it was... Definitely maltier than anything else there, and uh, that was always on tap. And, and for some reason, I was attracted to... I'm not even sure I liked it, but it was different. <laughs> uh, I don't know, maybe I'm a contrarian at heart, but that was kind of my, my go-to beer when I was maybe 18. Uh, and, yeah, maybe... it. I guess it made me realise that beer was something a little bit more exciting. When they finally took it off tap at my local, the barman took me aside... Well, the owner took me aside and said, look, I'm sorry, but you're the only one that drinks it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then I, I went to find a bottle for the for to refresh my memory before the show. And it turns out they discontinued it uh, two years ago. I think he got an email from the CEO of Montese and went, "Listen, you were the only one that ever drank it. So, <laughs> not sustainable business model." No, I actually emailed, but I did email DB, and I'm like, "What happened with this? When did it happen?" And I, they never gave me a, a proper answer. So, it doesn't exist anymore. But Montese Cultic Red has uh, started me off on, on beer. I think. 
one of the nice things about recording a podcast is seeing the guests really light up and really start to become passionate about when they talk about the beer. And the other thing is when they start recounting a story about a beer that they had in a particular place or a particular time of their life or a certain circumstance. And perhaps it's not the fact that that beer tasted really good or blew their socks off, but the situation that they were in and beer was integral to that celebration or that event or whatever had happened in their life at the time. And one thing that cropped up time and again was the experiences when people left Australia and travelled. Here is Will Zabel, beer historian and writer for the Crafty Pint, amongst others, explaining why this traditional English ale holds a special place for him. Which beer is it? Timothy Taylor's Landlord, classic English pale ale. And the reason I included that is because I, while I was studying, I spent a semester at the University of Nottingham in the UK. And I don't think that's when I really got that into beer but just it was more the process of coming back to Australia and feeling like there wasn't as much choice here that I I kind of started rethinking or, or kind of just going to different venues but trying to make sure I would go to a venue where like they had a bit of choice because in England I felt like even the pubs that weren't so good you'd still have a cascade you'd still have a real ale you'd still you'd still have a genuine level of choice which yeah, I got used to. I got comfortable with the the uh, bar we used to go to on a Friday night. Occasionally, was so it was called the Dunkirk, but we called it the Unkirk because the D had long since like <laughs> vanished. And you know, it was a flat roof pub. And no, this is like no joke. It was such a rough place that the guy who poured us beers had a swastika, swastika tattoo on his <laughs> oh, arm. <no. laughs> like this is this is how rough this. And he was actually a reformed skinhead who wow which is yeah interesting in itself but he was like straight out of this is england is he like the type of guy you, you think twice about saying can you just top this up please? You, you'd, <laughs> yeah well we one night we all kind of asked him about what was going on because the thing that always shocked us was the other bartender was of pakistani origin so we kind of always thought well if it's a weird way to run a skinhead <laughs> establishment but uh, it turned out he'd uh sort of done the American History X thing and one time in prison sort of realised the follies of his views and ways. So that's that's, that's a very long way of describing why I like uh, Landlord. So moving from England, uh, I'm going to pass over to Scott from Aussie Brewery Tours talking about his time in Boston. So about my first week in the States. So basically I, I lived in Boston um, I worked about 40 minutes south of Boston. So I lived in the actual city, but I, I worked sort of out in the suburbs, I guess, um, right next to the Reebok headquarters, which I don't mm. know if anyone actually knows, but is in the shape of the Reebok tick or the Reebok symbol, or the, not the tick, but the double swoosh yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. So that, that's, wow. if you look at it from the air, it looks like <laughs> the thing. So we were next door to that and, and Dunkin' Donuts and that, if anyone knows the American. So they were they were headquartered next to us as well. So we were sandwiched in between those. And anyway, at the end of our street, there was like a, a typical American like towny kind of bar restaurant thing and um about maybe five days in my boss said to me you know let's go grab a beer after work it was an uh, american bloke um and we went in and i ordered the harpoon double ipa 
I had no idea what I was ordering. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, have gone from drinking mostly domestic drafts in Australia, um, you know, the, the, uh, the odd wheat beer and, and things like that, um, to this uh, double IPA. And I remember taking a sip of it and it tasted a little bit like putting, you know, ball bearings in my mouth and sucking on a 9-volt battery. <laughs> I, I think I necked about maybe a quarter of the pint because it was, I didn't really like it, but I was just, and then I didn't want to look like a pussy in front of my boss. He likes my brand new boss. And also he's an American. Like, I don't know why that really annoyed me. You know what I mean? But I wanted to be bigger and stronger than him or something like that. And I remember about maybe 20 minutes later, he said to me, um, is your beer all right? Or something along those lines, you know, do you like that beer? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like real. It's like the oath mate's beer, don't you know? We drink beer in Australia and drunk some more. Um, but I must have been sort of like subconsciously like trying to push it off the edge of the bar or something <laughs> along those lines. Cause, um, but about maybe oh, two and a half years ago or something, like three years ago maybe, I found myself back in Boston and I went and I found this beer purposely and I had it and it was amazing. Really? Because I, lo- I love double IPAs and things like that now. You know wow. what I mean? Like my taste buds have grown and, you know, I've, I've changed, I guess. Scott was probably the guest um, who most talked about stories around beer rather than the taste and the science behind a beer. And it was really nice to hear um, that particular story amongst others. Now, staying in America, uh, Ian McLean, who's originally from the UK, moved over to Australia, but in the interim had a very glamorous life sounding lifestyle in Hollywood. Here is Ian explaining a double IPA that really knocked his socks off. Oh, this is a good one. I found out today when I was researching this, this is discontinued now, uh, Mad River Steelhead Double IPA. Mad River Steelhead Double IPA. Yeah. Tell us more. This is discontinued. Yeah. So, so Rate Beer says, um, I'd met my wife. I was living in the Anaheim Hills in Southern California, in Orange County, and uh Met Holly, and she was a producer at uh, CBS. And uh, she, you know, we'd gone out on a few dates and whatnot, and Christmas came up, and she went to the world market in Hollywood. They got this; they had this. Probably still got it uh, behind CBS Studios. This big market, we can get all these different things from all different cultures, and she got um, ten of the best craft beers in a box and they did 10 uh, craft beer and I think 10 for one was domestic and one was foreign so she got the domestic American and I sat in the house that I was living in overlooking the hills near overlooking Disneyland so the fireworks went off drinking these beers and a couple of them were good a couple of them were like hmm you know could have given that a miss but it was nice beer then I got to this this beer I remember the the label was a blue-green. It had a steelhead salmon leaping out of a river drawn on it, like a hand-drawing kind of thing. Uh, Mad River across the top, steelhead IPA, double IPA. And it was the first double IPA I'd ever had. And my, it was my epiphany, my awakening to the, the IPA and the hop contagion. And I just remember sitting on the sofa watching a movie. Think, and the guy that I was living with, he was drinking some red wine and... He was talking away and I was kind of slipped out of the conversation for five minutes. I thought, fuck me, what is this? <laughs> and I remember sitting there. I could hear a voice talking at me and there was no response because I was just looking at his label going, this is beautiful. 
now from a dumbfounded Ian McLean to Grum from Exit Brewery. And when I interviewed Fraze and Grum, by the way, two of the nicest people in beer, I was fascinated to find out that they were at the first ever AGM for BrewDog. And that's very topical at the moment as BrewDog have identified the site they're going to be building their brewery in Brisbane. Here is Grum talking about one of BrewDog's beers that really switched on a light for him. Uh, yeah, okay. My second I've put down as a BrewDog 5am site. Um, it was an experience as much as the beer. I think it was when we were up there for their first AGM. Um, we're up having a tour of their brewery and they had 5am saint in the bright tank. So it was uh, very fresh, and I think it might have been the first time I tried it. Um, and just the balance and the freshness um, and the environment, and yeah, I think it was one of those beers that I will always remember having, um, and a beer that I loved for years as well. So kind of probably the first time I'd had an American amber um, as a style. So yeah, got me onto a style, and yeah. And in terms of where Brewdog is, you're saying about the setting. What is the setting at Brewdog? You, you're quite, it's quite isolated, isn't it? Uh, yeah, okay. Well, this is the old brewery. So this was up at Fraserborough, which mm. is um, basically, I know, it's, was it a fishing town, I guess? Pretty much, With, yeah. Um, yeah. That, and I think it's the heroin capital of Scotland. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure about that, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's certainly fishing involved as well. Yeah, so. uh, and a small industrial area and, yeah, not much, uh, not very picturesque and, um, yeah, but their new brewery is um, down in Allen uh, as a suburb of uh, Aberdeen. Um, and well, it looked a lot nicer when we were there. It wasn't quite finished last time I was there, but yeah. And a tad bigger. A little bit bigger, yeah. I imagine. Okay. About a <laughs> yeah. thousand times the size. Now we're going to stay in Scotland. And here is my good friend, Neil Smith, who's starting up a brewery in the northwest of England in his back garden. And he is an Australian, but he doesn't talk like one, although he was born in Australia. And here he is explaining a trip to Scotland, which entailed a beer that changed everything. We, we took our families up to uh, Edinburgh for a few days, um, um, just to hang out and stuff. And and I was dead excited. I was like, I'd, I'd, I'd discovered this world of beer and, and I knew Stephen was a, um, a, a lager drinker just like me. And I was like, you know, I was going to turn him on to, to beer, you know, just in the same way that I had and stuff. And I became that person. And, um, and we went into this place and there was, and I was going, Oh, this little creatures, this is the beer. This is the one I was telling you about and all this kind of stuff. And then, a little bit later on in the evening, we went into this place and, we were just, and I was just like scanning around for these other beers. And there was this thing called Innocent Gun and we got a, a bottle of reach and it was just, you know, it was something I'd never tasted before, you know, a, a kind of oaked beer um, kind, uh, thing. And, and it, that was, a, you, you know, if you were to ask like Stephen, what, you know, with six beers, that would be in his, in his thing. That was his eureka moment in terms of drinking non-lager kind of beers and stuff. Now, um, it, it's, it's really quite interesting actually because um, I, I tried to do a clone of Vinicent Gun and, and I did a lot of reading about it and and I, I read about the company and I, I, I was so it just became so cynical how that beer became about I, um, you know where it was basically they were just company um, where they are oh, right um, they were basically this company 
um, who um, were asked to um, to um, age um, some barrels with beer so that the company could then use those barrels and then they were throwing the beer away. And, wow. um, and the people who were drinking, the, the people who were supposed to be throwing it away were drinking the beer saying it was fabulous. And so the guy was like, hang on a minute. And that was how it came about. Do you know what I mean? And then they came up with this whole, they came up with the brands. It's, now that I'm trying to set up a brewery, I've realized the importance of brands and it's not so cynical after all. But at the time I was reading it, I was going, this is so cynical. Because they basically came up with a, a brand and then made the beer to fit the brand. Do you know what I mean? And I just thought like that was just so rubbish. But I, now I've, I've since realized that that's actually the right thing to do that's the correct way to go about it. <laughs> you know what i mean it runs um, very very important and stuff um and um yeah and uh, you know so that that was that and uh, I, I to be perfectly honest i don't really drink it anymore i don't really like it uh, anymore but at the time i thought it was fantastic talking of fantastic beers here is andrew from fury and son telling me a bit of information about road and back which i just did not know and here is a bit of a story, a bit of a legend. Maybe it's an urban myth. Maybe it's fact. I don't know. I'll have to go away and research a bit more. But it's a really good story. Here's Andrew Giorgio. Choice five is uh, the Rodenbach Grand Cru. Um, not only is it a delicious beer, um, uh, amazing, uh, but I, I, I really like the story behind it. Um, so I don't know if there's any truth to this, but I was told um, <laughs> that uh, obviously they've, they've been around for, for you know, 100 years or so. Um, and when they wanted to upgrade their brewery, they started ripping out all their old equipment. Um, but they found the beers weren't tasting the same because I guess the bacteria just hadn't taken a hold of it. Um, so, yeah, what was really cool is that they can't upgrade their brewery. They, they have to upgrade it in stages. They, they need to, you know, upgrade one or two things, let the bacteria take a hold, upgrade another couple of things. And that story behind, you know, the being so passionate about the beer and not being able to supply a demand is just really cool. Now, staying in the low countries, here's phrase from Exit Brewery talking about something he's very, very passionate about, which is Belgian beers and uh, they Exit Brewery have opened a tap room and bar in Richmond and Bridge Road, which is called Utgang. I really haven't said that properly, but uh, you should definitely head down there because they always have cracking beers on tap. But clearly the influence of visiting Belgium, this is another beer where Frey's really lit up when he started talking about it. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> it's another one for Europe. I think Europe's going to win this one. Um, yeah, so it's a Golden Corollas Classic, um, which is a beer that, yeah, well, I, I certainly fell in love with. And I probably had a similar effect when Graham was talking about earlier with the um, the Rochefort 8. Uh, this one had a similar effect on me. I mean, a real sort of spicy character to the, to the, whether it's the proprietary yeast they use or whether it's the additives they put in there. There's a little bit of like a licorice, you know, hint and that to it, a bit of aniseed and that sort of thing. And just a beautiful uh, example of a lovely um, malt-driven beer that's you know that's that I found really um, although it is eight and a half percent it was lovely on a warm day as well as on a on a cold day and um, and just yeah you know family owned brewery um, and a terrific you know we visited that brewery as well and um, it's one of those places where yeah you just 
I, I think it's it's once you once you're in a place, and as Grum was sort of saying, I mean, part of the the fun for us going over there was wasn't necessarily seeking out particular stuff, you know, as you as you might do, you know, when you you're here and you're aware of different beers coming in. It was like, right, okay, we're here now. Let's just see what's around, and and you take it, you know, you go from bar to bar or brewery to brewery. Oh, what's local? Oh, let's go and visit this, and then you'd have these beers and go, oh wow, I haven't had that, and you know, chatting to the locals and that sort of thing, and you'd get, um, you know, you get recommendations from them or the or the bar staff or the owners and that, and so you go, yeah, so you go around that, but yeah, that was certainly um, one of my, I guess. The one that pushed me over into the edge of that really um, big style of beer, and uh, and just a great, um, just a great example of an independent Belgian brewery, you know, mm. that had really consistent um, consistent quality as well. So one of the trends in beer in Australia in the last eighteen months or so has definitely been a shift towards sour beers and more experimentation and more knowledge there. And there's certainly lots of people who drink sour beer. But this was a, is a person who is dedicated to sour beer. This is Henry from Himmel Brewing, and he's not a drinker of sour beer. He's a doer. He's also probably got the best accent of anybody I've interviewed so far. So now I'll go to sour beer. It's, it's time. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so although they are on the bottom of my list, it's like the same thing. It's like how I've been drinking beers, but they're actually at the top of my list of all the beers. Even so, for normal beer, I'll drink wheat beer, Dunkelweizen. But for if I have to choose, I'll drink a sour beer, Heinz sour beer. That's why I've had. I play around with it all the time. So um, the first beer that was a Rodenbach Vintage, I think 2011. It's a great, and since we've had 2007, 11, 13, 15, whatever around, I just drink it. It's great, <laughs> great beer, and it's, it's amazing how they just keep it consistent over time. But they've got thousands of barrels, so it's it's pretty easy for them to do it properly after a few um, years of making beer. So. Um, so after I had that beer, I got a battle very soon after what's going on, did some research, found out it's going, just made it, just don't, don't care too much about it. So we said, um, so when I started doing it, I, like, in Milk with Funk, it's like all mostly American guys that's in it, so it's, it's, you can write messages to people, but you can't actually talk to anybody really that much. So I just like started my own Facebook group, and um, I just like said, whoever's available, come to the brewery, let's do some stuff, because that's, that's the way that I do stuff, I just make stuff and do stuff so um a few so after we had a bad brewery already and so a few guys be like yeah yeah let's do it so we made a battle called tablespoon so everybody just pitched in and we basically brew eight 50 liter batches one after the other over two days yep and a bit of sleep in between made it put it in together put it in the battle so that's the battle it's like at back it's just waiting to be drunk now when i turned up to do the in- interview for uh himmel brewing uh annabelle and henry had set up like some some South African food stuffs, and had brought a couple of bottles, and it was it was really quite nice. But it was freezing cold in the brewery, and uh, we were all uh, kept our coats on and could almost see our breath in front of us. But what a fantastic interview it was, and uh, they really opened up about things. You'll hear Annabelle talk a little bit later on, but in the meantime, staying on the sour beer and funky beer, here is Dave from Ale of a Time, describing his kind of first step into the sour beer world. He is very articulate about it. Here goes. Cantillon, uh, 100% biolambic. Dick Gersia, yeah, of course. And that was one where, like, I think I'd heard the name before. I didn't really know what was up with it. But again, I thought I was a bit of a hot shot, so it was an expensive bottle. I thought I've, I've got that. I've got that cash in my pocket. Um, 
grabbed it. First sip. Well, before the first sip, the aroma confused the hell out of me. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. But I also was so naive that I didn't even think the possibility was that the beer was flawed. I just thought, what is going on in this glass? First sip utterly confounded me. I've, I've never had an issue with sourness with anything. So, like, I didn't mind the sourness, but I didn't know what was going on. And I had the 750ml bottle to myself. And from first sip to last, I did not work any of it out. I was confused with every single sip. Didn't know if I enjoyed it or not. But it, I certainly like lit a fire about like what is going on here. I've got to find out more about this kind of beer. Now, when I came up with the idea of the Chosen Brew podcast, it was largely just for fun and f- to find out kind of what beers shaped Australia, shaped the modern brewery scene in Australia. So I was expecting most of the talk to focus on the beer and on the flavours and the science but one really nice spin-off has been how often the guests have talked about beer genuinely and sincerely changing their lives and changing the course of their life as well. Ben from What's River Brewing in Healesville, he opened up about how important White Rabbit was. He says here that the, the beer's kind of irrelevant, it's not to his taste, but it'd definitely be in his chosen brew because of what it means. Here he is explaining why that was. White Rabbit had a big impact on me as a brewer. Um, when they opened in Hillsville, or when they were setting up in Hillsville, was when I first went in there. Um, at the time, I just left Red Hill Brewery, so I just went in there and pretty much showed up until they gave me a job. So, <laughs> which, at the time, there was only two people working there, and I was the third. So my first ship was packaging their first their first beer they brewed. So and I worked there right up till the end. So I was there the longest in Hillsville out of anyone. So it had a really big impact on on me. Well, Kai might have worked there longer to set up hmm. around the same. But yeah, so I brought in the Dark Ale today because that was their first beer, kind of. Originally the White Rabbit was a pale ale, then they made it dark afterwards had to put all the stickers on the, <laughs> <laughs> on, on, on the six packs so it's burnt some memories in my brain there um but yeah a beer i enjoy drinking it's probably um not one of my favorite beers it's a little bit sweet for my palate so but i still enjoy drinking it and it's had a big impact on my life that brewery and the people that work there i still get along with them really well and talk to them regularly another interesting thing about the guest I've interviewed is clearly the process of choosing the six beers have has caused them to be reflective and not just on the beer quality but also the emotions that come with that. Here is Annabelle who is the head brewer of Himmel Brewing explaining why one particular beer did change everything for her. Choice five, um, I've got a bottle of Two Birds Sunset Ale. Uh, I think... One of the first kind of um, independent breweries that I tried their beers and kept going back and buying it as a staple beer was the Two Birds Sunset Ale and the Golden Ale. Um, they're both great. I just like the Sunset a little bit more. Um, and 
one of the reasons I chose this as well, apart from it being a delicious beer, um, is because drinking that beer and then reading about two birds and um, Jane and Danielle, seeing that Jane had her own brewery was when I had that like a heart moment going, oh, I can be a brewer too because unfortunately there's um, – not wrong word, unfortunately, but there there is a – unbalanced between men and women in the industry it's which is fine I mean all the guys I know in brewing are fantastic and lovely um but I just didn't didn't cross my mind that I could make a career out of beer um so that kind of inspired me to say actually I can do this as a job and go and study brewing and go for it as well now, from that inspiring story, we'll go to another which might be common for you listening, which is you start home brewing, you think, oh, could I go commercial? Could I make that leap? Could I get a bit bigger? I just need a little place and put the equipment in and start brewing and bottling my own beers. Well, this guy, Casey Wagner from Westside Aleworks, did exactly that from home brewing to commercial he's based in south melbourne but this is a beer from his home country one of my favorite places to go was ballast point for their their core range and i was very familiar with the core range and one day i was going to pick up like a standard cake from them and i noticed that they had this new beer on tap and it was called sculpin and it was a, a big ipa so i was like yeah let's try it and um, i've never had a beer quite like it before and and it just had so much different layers of hop uh, flavor to it, from citrus to mango to apricot. And you really, like, as you sipped it, you would get each one of those flavors um, as it went down. And it was really, really unique. I've never had anything like it before. Uh, so that's definitely, you know, played a big part in, in t- to my liking of, of uh, hop-forward beers and I've always kind of tried to recreate something similar to it. So Now, when I recorded that with Casey, I did not realize that just a few months later, I would be interviewing one of the people who was instrumental in making Sculpin and getting Ballast Point Sculpin off the ground way back when. So here is Colby Chandler, Vice President of Ballast Point, which as he told us in the interview, started off as a homebrew shop in 1992, sold for $1 billion in 2015. He did say that's the American dream, but it sounds more like a hallucination to me. But one of his beers that he chose was malt-driven, and he explains that at the end about the importance of malt. But this beer that he chooses is not American. So kind of as I became a little bit more legal drinking age, um, I was in Hawaii. I lived in Hawaii for 11 years. Just like I mentioned earlier, a horrible, horrible brewing scene. So for me, you know, Budweiser was probably 14, 14 to $17 a 12-pack. And that was, you know, in the 80s, you know, 80 to 93. So that would be the beer of choice. But... Whenever I'd go to a party, I'd always have a few 
bottles in my pocket that I went to the local store and got some imports. And I love the Sam Smith Brown, uh, the Nut Brown, the Sam Smith Nut Brown, and the Oatmeal Stout. But I really like the Nut Brown and that kind of the the richness and the maltiness of it. And it was kind of that that beer that got you that got me out of the macro lagers and the import lagers. And I mean, I, I still drank a bunch of those, but that was the beer that all my friends didn't like and wouldn't drink and I'd pull those two bottles out, drink those, and then I'd go drink the Budweiser out of the refrigerator <laughs> with everybody else. I mean, it's malt is, I think, what's really going to separate beers here in the future because everybody knows hops now. You know what I mean? Yeast is becoming more and more accepted and, and learned about and educated. But really, malt is the one kind of one of the ingredients and water, obviously, that, that don't really get enough credit, mm. I think. And even even with an incredibly hot beer, you have to have a nice complex malt profile behind it to to really make it stand out. I think now Ballast Point has caused a bit of controversy in the U.S. because of the buyout and all of the backlash and things that come with that. Um, this is Dan Dainton talking about a brewery that's recently been acquired and one of their beers that changed everything. For Dan Dainton. Yeah, look, I'm going to go out here and say um, a recent beer from an Australian brewery that's really inspired me uh, as a Pirate Life Pale Ale. Um, to me, just an outstandingly made, consistent beer. You know, to get a beer that's, I think I might have had one that maybe wasn't a thousand percent fresh, and I've had a lot. Um, to, to bring out a beer like that in the last couple of years um, and to really nail it. Um, you know, and they talk about world class beer, and, and that one is to me. Um, to bring that out with great packaging and consistent, awesome flavour, and to get it everywhere, you know, that's something that that re- we really want to sort of um, emulate to a certain extent. So much so that we actually use the same designer. You can probably tell with our, <laughs> our recent stuff. It wasn't my idea, but um, <laughs> and look, they're just such great blokes as well, um, and just do a, an outstanding job. So. For me to have a great product and then have an amazing company and people behind it, it really inspires me and gives me great hope for the industry. It's just like, wow, that's awesome. So hats off to those guys. Moving from pirate life in Adelaide, I interviewed James Davidson from Bright Brewery, who's the marketing manager there, and talk about being passionate and opening up when talking about beer. James was great value. And here he is explaining probably his first beer pilgrimage. Here's where it really kicked into gear to me. Uh, here's where I th- really started to understand what I loved about uh, the the small independent breweries, as I'll call them, the craft breweries of the world, which is Holgate Big Reg, which I have a bottle here in my hand. It is an empty bottle. It's just uh, a bottle I held on to because I loved it so much and it was epiphany. Um, anyway... Holgate won a People's Choice Award for this beer, and for the first time in my life, my ears pricked up at, oh, a beer has won an award, Uh, so there's marketing working on me. So I I made it, my wife and I made a pilgrimage out to to Holgate at Woodend, which is about an hour northwest of of Melbourne, Uh, and it was as far as I remember, it was my first genuine visit to a small brewery where I was actually going there to go and try beer rather than just going in for a meal or it because of what you did as a tourist. And um, I tried this Big Reg 
and it was a lager. And it blew my mind because it was like no lager I had ever tasted before. It was first red, a really, really brilliant red, red colour, and it was sweet. Just the the beauty of that beer, that that crystal red colour um, and the flavour really, really blew me away. Now, James clearly is very passionate about beer. And sometimes when you're in an interview, you're talking and it's going pretty well. And you stumble on a beer or a brewery or a topic and sometimes the guests just take a hold of the ball and run with it. It's so exciting when that happens to me as an interviewer. It's so wonderful to see people get so passionate and so enlivened by the thing that they're talking about. This is Dan, the head brewer a tall boy a moose in Preston talking fantastically about a brewery in England which is close to many people's hearts. My third choice stems a lot from where I ended up at university and I was in Leeds and Leeds is one of the principal cities in Yorkshire um, which I'm sure most Australians have come across what with its rich cricketing history as well. And um, the beer that I chose was one that isn't brewed within Leeds, but just outside Leeds in a little town called Tadcaster. And the beer I've chosen is Old Brewery Bitter from Samuel Smith's. And the main reason I have chosen this one is because it is about the cheapest pint you could possibly get in the UK and still to this day is probably still. Uh, So when I was a student and moving away from macro-brewed lagers and Hogarden, we were looking for good beer, not necessarily local, but very competitively priced. And Samuel Smith's is one of the the few breweries in the UK that still has an estate. So they still own, I think it's over 200 pubs all across the UK, which is now pretty much a thing of the past. Mm. Back in the day, that's what every brewery did in the same concept that we have. If you control your own taps, you're going to have better returns on your on your product so samuel smith has retained all of its all of its pubs and they continue to grow and they have a very very cool business model in that they are very traditional to the old sort of victorian style of pub culture in the uk they play no music in their uh, in their pubs and it's just all about good well made honest beer and the brewery bitter when <laughs> the old brewery bitter when i was a student was in some of their pubs was less than a pound a pint wow and as a student you just can't go wrong at that kind of price so that, that is cheaper than milk it uh, is it? It almost was yeah and and the great thing is i ended up then moving to York when I was a bit later. So York's even closer to Tadcaster. And I was fortunate enough to go to some of the pubs just outside York in the small villages in the, in the wold of Yorkshire. And they still get their beer delivered by old, you know, horse and dray um, to, to their pubs. So literally you have the Shire Horse, the Drayman, 
all the oak barrels, a lot of their beer still ends up in oak um, in the pubs, and the beer is just unbelievable. Going back now and having a much better appreciation of what beer is about and how beer is made, and and tasting um, those those beers, you just you're blown away. They've had such an amazing signature flavour. A lot of it coming from the fermentation methods. So they're they're brewed in Yorkshire squares, still stone slate squares and you know there's so much so many things wrong about a a yorkshire square but that just provides so much flavor to the beer and then the fact that they're aged in oak barrels i mean oak aging is like and barrel aging beers is suddenly really bang on trend but that bit that brewery's been doing that since time in ad infinitum that's that's just the way they do it and you can you can taste there's a there's a bit of lactic there's a bit of bread there's a bit of funk going on in these beers and yet that's just that's the flavor and that's something which i've just grown up with and yeah a real real nostalgia kind of wow that that's a beer when i was just yeah loved that beer yeah. so much and it's still there it's still going they're still going strong so if whenever you get back to the uk hit up the samuel smith's pub it, you will not be disappointed now you can get a lot of the samuel smith beers in australia they travel fairly well they're probably a bit on the pricey side for certainly in the experience in the uk they're much cheaper but their quality is superb and certainly that malt-driven side of things is is possibly where it gets really interesting in future as people finish their hop journey and are looking for something a little bit more, maybe something a bit more nuanced. Samuel Smith would be a great beer to start with. Now, just before we finish the episode, a good place to finish would be going back to the very inception of the Chosen Brew podcast, which initially it was going to be the last six beers you'd ever drink but i just thought that would be too hard to choose and i think people's beer journey is probably more interesting than the last six beers you'd ever drink but here is my good friend reese he's from chicago he's talking about one of the beers that changed everything one of and incidentally he's talking about one of the last beers he'd ever drink from the pilot episode and many of you might recognize this what was back then a very localized beer now things have changed a bit so choice five is another um, very localized beer and it's out of chicago so i grew up in indiana in northern part of indiana and right outside of chicago and so there was a lot of visitation to chicago and after after um university i ended up uh, moving to chicago for a while and and there's a there's a few breweries in Chicago, but the one that um, was the the standout for me was the Goose Island Brewery, which is up on the north side. It's up on Clark Street. There's a, a brew pub up there, and and they're actually starting to distribute their beers across the United States. I noticed that like um, some friends over on the East Coast and things are getting quite a lot of Goose Island beers and whatnot. So it's interesting to notice that like they're starting to kind of shift around the nation as well you know well so they've started start. to appear in australia as well and i think uh i think the goose island have recently been bought out yeah it's um, a damn shame it seems to be happening a lot doesn't it so. <laughs> well i suppose uh there is a short period of uh of time where you get the genuine goose island beer in places like australia which had never happened before 
uh, until they change mm. the brew, which they say they won't. <laughs> well, I think that there's a certain amount of um, economics applied to brewing once, you know, uh, large-scale producers get involved. But, you know, that's not a topic for this particular conversation. But so tell me what's so special about this Goose Island. Is it is it emotional memory? What about the beer? Incredibly emotional. So the fact is that they're, they're another brewery that was similar to Upland uh, in that, you know, you could have sat down, you would have had just about every single beer that they had on tap. But it was the pale, it was, uh, they called it a 312 pale, which is the uh, area code for Chicago. So um, in the States, this is kind of a, a thing, you know, you, know, you want to know what area code you're from. <laughs> And so, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of it kind of ties into that. And it was a very easy to drink pale, very um, uh, modern American type, you know, up forward, you know, fruity type of pale. And the the brew pub is bloody up there near uh, Wrigley Field in yeah, yeah, yeah. in Chicago, which is a, a baseball stadium. And uh, I, I'm not not necessarily a strong advocate of baseball but <laughs> it's an exciting game to go to the stadium and watch because the crowd gets into it and it's you know it's full action you know within the crowd even though it's not full action on the field <laughs> um but uh you know so it's really cool like I, I i lived up on the north side a few friends that lived like very very close to there and we would we would congregate there and and it was it was always exciting to be able to to have whatever beers in on tap, but particularly the pale, which would have been, you know, definitely the first and always the last beer I had before I went on my merry way home. Now, talking of last beers, this is the end of the podcast, episode 20. I got there after many sleepless nights, and sometimes some episodes are more tricky to get out than others. This is probably the trickiest to get out, but thanks for sticking with us and listening hopefully you enjoyed that recap and listening back to some of those stories and i think i'm going to end with a story which really got me onto the notion that the format of the chosen brew and the six beers that changed everything was a real way to get people to open up but to share not just their beer journey but also part of who they are and this story probably hit me the most which is Emily Day from Froth. She's talking about a beer which she's very passionate about but it's really the story around the beer, the circumstance in which she had it and the emotion wrapped up with that. It's a really nice place to end this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy Emily's story and I'll see you for episode 21. Thanks for listening to The Chosen Brew. Here's Emily Day from Froth Magazine. The first one that sprang to mind was um, Bridge Road Brewers um, Bling IPA um, because that's probably the most like visceral beer memory I have of being like almost literally knocked over by a beer. It was that good, that I could not function for a few seconds. Um, and this was back in 2010. And, um, well, this is a good story. Would you like to hear the long version? Oh, please. I'm going to tell you regardless because I'm holding a microphone. <laughs> um, so, okay. I got hit by a car. <laughs> I told you it's a long story. I got hit by a car and I got, like, severely messed up, like, 
quite, quite broken. And um, so I had to go live with my parents for a few months because I couldn't put my socks on or I had to drink out of a straw and stuff. Um, and my parents, who were super fabulous, like, just, like, did everything for me. Like, even though they're not into junk food, my mum bought me yogo because I said, Mum, I'm really sad. Can you buy me some yogo? which is, I don't know if you've had it, it's a disgusting chocolate mousse um, for children. Um, so she bought that for me and, like, every night when I went to bed, she'd put, like, a little hot wheat bag in my bed for me, oh. like, some severe parental attention. It was really nice. Anyway, so how, after... How, how old were you at this point? Oh, dude, I was, like, a full-on grown-up. Okay. Like, this is six <laughs> years ago. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, like, I did not get out of my pyjamas for a month. Like, that's the extent to which I was not doing anything. Um... Anyway, um, yeah, so after a couple of months when I kind of was ready, I was released back into society and I started wearing clothes again and, like, brushed my hair. Um, I really wanted to thank my parents for looking after me. So we went to um, Cutler & Co. Mm. in Fitzroy, which is, like, super yummy. And I'd never been there before and, you know, we don't really do fancy things. And we just had this, like, amazing dinner and it was, like, just my way to thank them and... It kind of felt so nice to be out of the house and wearing clothes and not wearing a neck brace. And um, I ordered the Bling IPA, which I'd never had before. And it was just like the taste of it was just like being like knocked over by a wave at the ocean. You know, when it's just like so refreshing, but like, oh my God, what just happened? Like, um, and I think that really kind of exactly matched the feeling of kind of being knocked over by the car and then kind of like coming back. Um, And so that's why I have severely strong emotional feelings towards this beer and I love it very much. The end. (laughs) 